Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? It's a privilege to be able to be here this morning and, and uh, just kind of share with, uh, with you guys what uh, the Lord's put on my heart. Um, it gives me a little bit of appreciation for what uh, Neil does every week, bringing a message before, uh, before this, uh, this church. It's a lot of preparation, and uh, doing something like this definitely helps me uh, keep it in perspective and not take it for granted, the, uh, the great messages that he brings to us uh, week after week. Well, many of you know that uh, I've been to the church, well, nine or ten years, well, ten or eleven years now, and uh, was talking with Neil about what he thought maybe today's message should entail, and uh, was telling him about some things that have taken place in my life over the past ten years or so that have, have caused me to be a little more fearful about the spiritual unseen world. I'm talking spiritual warfare, you know, Satan, uh, demonic activity, those kind of things. And, you know, I think I've always had an interest in that. When I was growing up, I remember in the town that I grew up in, uh, there was a guy that was on the radio. And I was homeschooled for a couple of years, and so I could, I could do whatever I wanted for a couple of years. And uh, so I would listen to this guy on the radio, and uh, he was so... Con- he was, he was so uh, just consumed with the devil and with, with demons. And he would cast demons out over the phone on the radio. Uh, it's crazy. I, I think about it now and I go, man, this, this guy was crazy. But I was interested in it. You know, it kind of piqued my interest. And, you know, I, I think I've seen over the past 10 years, uh, I've become a little more fearful of these things. You know, there's stories that we hear, movies that we see, uh, maybe even things that that I've thought in my head that have given me a weird perspective. But we definitely live in a world that's full of the sensationalized, right? Movies, books. It's really easy for these kind of ideas to pop into our head and for us to get fearful of them. You know, there's certain, some movies, I think I have some movies on a slide here that uh, have come out recently that kind of make my point here, like Constantine there. I didn't see that movie, but I remember the previews for it. And listen, this is the tagline for Constantine. Hell wants him. Heaven won't take him. Earth needs him. I mean, come on. Really? The Haunting and Amneville, uh, Amneville Horror. You know, these are supposedly based on true events, right? All to pique the moviegoer's interest. And I think the most famous of them all, uh, the next slide there, The Exorcist. You know, uh, I think it says up there, the scariest movie of all time. You see, we live in a world full of the sensational. The scarier, the freakier, the more ghoulish, the better chances of making money. This all begs the question, How much power does Satan really have? And that's what we're going to look at today. You know, I think the perception we have as believers can sometimes be skewed to things that are not based in biblical truth. 
I think it's really easy for us to start relying on the testimonies of men rather than the Word of God. You see, all the things that we hear, all the things that we see, even the things that we think in our minds, they all need to be viewed through the truth that's in God's Word. Today we're going to look at two Old Testament stories. And I think those are, this, these stories we're going to look at are going to give us some answers to this question of how much power does Satan really have. The title of my message today is A Fresh Perspective on Our Old Enemy. Before we get into the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Father, I praise you for the opportunity to uh, share your word today. Lord, we do live in a world full of the sensational to get our minds and our thoughts thinking of things that are not based in truth. Father, I pray that you would just speak through me now, that you would use your word to minister to this church body. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, many of you know that... uh, I'm a big basketball fan. Big basketball fan. I grew up watching basketball. I think it started in like the fifth grade, and, you know, uh, I became a Clippers fan, unfortunately. Yes, there's about ten of us. Uh, Michael Jordan, that was somebody that I loved watching when I was growing up. And, uh, but I became a Clippers fan, and, uh, you know, it's interesting because I was kind of embarrassed about it at first, but then I realized that the Apostle Paul would have been a Clippers fan. No, I'm serious. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you would have seen that Apostle Paul says that God loves losers. So, I think the Apostle Paul would have been a Clippers fan. Anyway, there's, uh, I think that's my fifth grade class picture there. Um, you can see it was definitely kind of embarrassing to be a Clippers fan. But uh, in my illustrious career as a basketball player, I had amazing views of the game, usually from the bench. And uh, I played in many different types of basketball games. You, know, you find yourself playing in like a, maybe a one-on-one pickup game or a game at the park or maybe at the gym. And then, of course, you've got the games that you play, uh, league games or sanctioned games where you've got referees, five-on-five. It's a little more uh, organized. But, you know, in all those games, you're going to have a winner and you're going to have a loser, right? But there's one game that I really do not like to play. You see, there's a time when I'm on a team, usually no thanks to me, but I'm I'm on a team that blows our opponent out, right? First half, we're up by 50 points. They They have no chance of winning unless we just quit. You see, I do not like playing in those kind of games. And the reason why is because you're playing against a defeated opponent. You're playing against somebody who knows they're going to lose. They know what's going to happen. And because they know what's going to happen, they oftentimes start to get dirty. You see, their pride's hurt. And because their pride's hurt, they want to take it out physically physically on the team that's beating them up. 
I've seen a lot of people get hurt in games like that. You see, that's exactly the kind of opponent we're dealing with when it comes to Satan. We're dealing with somebody who knows his final end. He knows what's going to happen. Satan, God's enemy, knows his defeat is imminent. And so what's he do? He plays to hurt. He plays to wreak havoc in believers' lives. He plays to destroy people's lives. Because he has nothing to lose. Our first, chapter, our first uh, passage we're going to look at today is Job chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 6 to 12. Now, I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with the story of Job. Uh, Job's name actually means hated or much persecuted, which I find kind of funny since we say job, right? But that's, that's kind of interesting. But anyway, Job's name means hated or much persecuted. But the interesting thing is, is that we see in the first couple verses of Job that actually Job's life was kind of just the opposite. You see, verse 3 tells us that Job was extremely wealthy. The author of Job tells us that he was the greatest of all people in the East. That's an amazing statement. The greatest of all people in the East. The first verse, we see that Job is blameless and upright. He fears God, and he shuns evil. So Job wasn't just materially wealthy. He was also very spiritually wealthy. He was a devout man of God, one who loved the Lord. And that's where we see Satan come into the picture. Let's look at Job chapter 1, verses 6 to 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all the things that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. I think we have an amazing glimpse here of what's going on between the Lord and Satan. We have a glimpse into the presence of the Lord. And I think it's surprising that we find Satan there. You see, we have the privilege of looking at this now, reading it. But Job, when he was going through this, didn't know what was happening. Now, we don't know if later maybe the Lord gave him some divine revelation and he found out what caused all the suffering, but uh, he may have been an author of, of Job. He may have been the author. So we don't know. But we know right now Job didn't know what was going on. But we have the opportunity 
to look back several thousand years later now and see what was happening. Let's take a closer look at, at Job 6, Job 1, uh, verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the Lord, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So here we have a picture of the angelic host coming before the Lord, both fallen and holy angels coming to report their activities to the Lord. You know, the context seemed to suggest that this is, this is a repeating occurrence. This is something that happens regularly. And again, the interesting thing is this includes Satan. Now, the word Satan in Hebrew actually comes from the word meaning accuser or adversary. You see, in the New Testament, in Revelation 12, verse 10, we actually see that said again. Satan is the, uh, Revelation 12.10 says that Satan is the accuser of our brethren who accuses them, our brethren, before God day and night. That's what he does. And this name Satan in Hebrew can carry with it a legal, a legal connotation. Kind of like a prosecutor that we would see in a court. And so Revelation tells us Satan does this day and night, bringing these accusations before the Lord. But, you know, we see another important fact in verse 6. We see an answer to the question that we posed earlier. How much power does Satan really have? You see, in verse 6, we see that Satan does not have the power to act independently of God. He is held accountable. I think we are so easily convinced that somehow Satan's power is on level with God's power. I know I, I find myself thinking that sometimes. I think we have the good and the evil, and, and we're bombarded with so many things that, that deal with the subject of good and evil. Uh, and in that plane, you usually see that the, the powers are pretty equal. But that's not a biblical think. That's not biblical thinking. Satan cannot choose to do what he wants. He's held accountable to God for his actions. So here we see the adversary of our Lord and the adversary of man reporting his actions to the Lord. Let's look at verse 7. Let's see what the Lord asked Satan to report on. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. You see, this response that Satan gives, this is a very similar response to one that we also see in the New Testament in 1 Peter. See, 1 Peter 5.8, the Apostle Peter tells us to be sober and be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So Job tells us that Satan was walking back and forth on the earth. And the Apostle Peter warns us that our adversary, the devil, Satan, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking for people he's going to devour. You know, the Greek word for walks about here in, in 1 Peter is peripateo. And the interesting part about that is that actually means to be consumed with. I think I got a picture of it. Yeah, we got a lion 
stalking its prey. I'm sure most of you have seen uh, a nature channel of some sort. And you've seen documentary on uh, lions and, and when they stalk their prey. You see, when a lion stalking its prey, that's the only thing it's thinking about. Its thoughts, its actions are intent on one thing. And that's to kill its prey. I believe that's exactly what Satan is reporting on to the Lord here. This is what he's been doing on earth. This is what he does on earth. We see that Job is soon going to be his next target. He's going to be consumed with Job. But verse 7 also gives us another answer to our question. How much power does Satan really have? You see, his answer to the Lord and the verse that we see in 1 Peter suggests Satan is, unable to fo- is not able to focus on more than one person at a time. I think we can say that Satan does not have the power to be everywhere at once. That is a biblical truth. He's not omnipresent like God is. Nor can he be occupied with more than one person at a time. You see, I've heard people be concerned about the fact that Satan might be attacking them. And I think this should give us comfort because we know that the chance from this, we know that the chances of that are actually probably pretty slim. Satan can only be consumed with one person at a time. Now, yes, Satan does have a host of fallen angels that do his work. But again, they fall within the same parameters. They are held accountable to the Lord for what they do. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So the Lord's asking Satan if he's taken notice of Job. And this is interesting because Satan responds like the father of all cynics that he is. He says, Oh, you mean the one that only worships you, Lord, because you bless him? Him? Lord, you've purposely protected him. His family, his possessions, everything that he has. I bet if you remove that protection, not only will he stop worshiping you, he'll curse you. Think about that for a minute. Look at what's taking place here. In these three short verses, we learn a lot about our enemy, Satan. We see Satan doing what he does best. He's making accusations against Job. And he's also making accusations against the Lord. Specifically, we see three accusations that he's making. And I know in your note sheet it says four, five, and six. I don't know how that happened. But uh, it's one, two, three. Okay? So first... We see Satan is accusing Job of being a fair-weather worshiper. Oh, Job, you only love God because you're blessed. 
If you weren't blessed, you wouldn't love him anymore. Second, we see Satan is accusing God of buying Job off. And that implies this last accusation, which I think is the most dangerous accusation of all, and one that we as believers need to be careful about. That implies that God is not worthy of being worshipped for who he is alone. How many times have we, have, have, have we as believers let that thought creep into our mind? That's a lie that's still out there today. Maybe we know somebody that's blessed materially, and we think to ourselves, ah, he's only a good Christian because of the stuff that he has. Maybe we find ourselves thinking that God is only worthy to be worshipped when things go our way. And when they don't, we try and bargain with God. Maybe we find ourselves saying, God, man, I'll be a better Christian if this happens, if I win the lottery. Come on, I know you've all thought that. Oh, Lord, what if I win the lottery? Man, I'll be such a good Christian. I'll give all my money away and I'll do the right thing. And That thought creeps into our mind. But see, that's false thinking. Because we are to worship God for who He is alone. Simply because He's God. You see, this is exactly how Satan Satan operates. In John 8, verse 44, we see that Satan does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks it from his own resources because he's a liar and he's the father of lies. He's the father of it. You see, Satan's goal is to destroy a believer's faith by getting him or her to believe these lies. Specifically, these lies are usually wrapped up in false doctrine, false teaching, bad thinking. That's why it's so important that we view the things that we see, that we hear, the things that we even feel, the things that are in our mind, that we view them through the lens of Scripture. Because that is truth. Satan is out there propagating lies all over the place. And his desire is to get us to believe one of them. So again, we see this dialogue between the Lord and between Satan in verses 8 to 11. Let's look at it again real quick. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So back to this question that we have. How much power does Satan really have? Well, I think in verses 8 to 11 we see that Satan does not have the power to see into our minds. He does not know our thoughts or our hearts. Satan is not omniscient like God is. You see, this should be of great comfort to us because only God knows our minds. Only God knows our hearts. He's promised 
to never put us in a situation beyond which we can handle. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us this. Let's finish this passage in Job by looking at verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Again, we see an answer to our question. How much power does Satan have? Well, he does not have the power over a believer unless it's granted to him. In verse 12, we see that he's granted, he's granted a finite amount of power to test Job. Nor is this power that he has, the scope of this power, unlimited. He can't do whatever he wants. Again, I think that should give us great comfort. Knowing that chances are, if we're feeling attacked, the Lord's already put limits on what Satan can do, on what his cohorts can do. He's limited. There's one other important limitation that I want to look at today. And in order to look at that, we're going to look at uh, this passage in Zechariah, chapter 3. Before we look at that passage, let me give Zechariah 3 a little bit of context. Okay? See, Zechariah was raised up nearly at the exact same time as the prophet Haggai. Haggai prophesied in August of 520 B.C., and Zechariah in October and November of 520 B.C. And this might be a little hard to read, but uh, the two red boxes in the middle, the top one says Haggai and the bottom one says Zechariah, and you can see that they started to prophesy very soon after the return of uh, the exiles to the city of Jerusalem in 537 B.C. And so they were contemporaries. They knew each other. You see, this was an exciting time for the, the nation of Israel. They had returned to Jerusalem. A remnant of believers had returned to Jerusalem, about 50,000 people. And they had returned to rebuild the walls and, more importantly, to rebuild the temple. But the work in the temple had pretty much stopped after 17 or 18 years. And as Haggai tells us, when we read in the book of Haggai, the people let the routines of their daily life get in the way. You know, the cares of this world just kind of consumed with what was happening, and they stopped building the temple. And so Haggai's and Zechariah's prophecies were there to cause the people to refocus their efforts on rebuilding the temple. And more importantly, refocus their, themselves on God. So the book of Zechariah starts with Zechariah being given eight visions that he sees. And we're going to look at the fourth vision that he has today. That's in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Let's look at it. Then the angel of the Lord, excuse me, then, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who, were, who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, 
See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Again, we have an amazing glimpse into the presence of the Lord. Now, this is a vision that Zechariah has given, and it's actually taking place. He's seeing this vision inside the temple. But it's kind of set up like a courtroom. And we have three individuals that we see here in this vision. The first one we see is the angel of the Lord. That's the second person of the Trinity. The pre-incarnate Christ. The second person we see is Joshua. This is Joshua, the high priest of Israel. This is not Joshua, the successor of Moses. Okay, This is Joshua who was who was going to be crowned or who was already crowned the high priest of Israel at the time. And third, here we see Satan doing what he does best. Standing there at Joshua's right hand to accuse him. You see, Satan is ready and willing to accuse Joshua. And not only Joshua, you see, Joshua is the high priest. And therefore, because he's the high priest, he's representing the nation of Israel. So Satan is there not only to accuse Joshua personally, but moreover to accuse the nation of Israel of their sin, of their not being worthy of being loved by God because of what they've done. You see, that's just like what we see in Revelation 12.10. Satan does not, make, does not stop making accusations day and night. He is continually, continually accusing the elect. Why? Why? If he knows his outcome, why does he do this? I believe he does this because just like that sports team that we talked about earlier that's defeated, he's fighting because he's got nothing to lose to inflict all the pain that he can in the time that he has. You know, if we stopped right there and left it at that, We'd probably leave feeling encouraged that we know Satan has some limitations. But I think we'd be a little discouraged, too. Because all of us know that sometimes Satan is successful in his attempt to destroy people's lives. It happens sometimes. But guess what? That's not the end of our story. Remember last week when Neil preached on God being greater? You see, we see here in verses 2 to 5 that God's grace is greater than Satan's accusations that he's going to bring before the Lord. Let's look at verses 2 to 5. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And then he, speaking of the angel of the Lord, answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with rich robes. And I, speaking of Zechariah, Zechariah actually has a, a vocal uh, part to play in this vision, 
Zechariah says, let him put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. And they put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. We see Satan being rebuked by the Lord here before he can bring his accusations. Satan is told Jerusalem, meaning Israel, was forgiven. They're forgiven despite the accusations that Satan had to bring. And it's apparent that he had plenty. Look at Joshua's clothes. I have a picture up here of what a priestly garment looks like clean. But the word for filthy garments there, literally in Hebrew, means human excrement, waste. The filthiest of the filthy. Not something you'd want to be wearing. See, these are real sins that Satan is going to bring before the Lord. It's not fake. But what does the Lord do? He removes that sin freely. He redresses Joshua in rich robes. See, I think this is an amazing picture that we have here of this vision that Zechariah has. Not only is this vision one that we see the love and the grace and the mercy of our Lord for his chosen people, Israel, this is also a great picture of what happens in a believer's life when they come to faith in Christ. When we believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life, He redresses us. The old has passed away. All has become new. You see, Satan's accusations are very real. He can bring them. But the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross... That's our covering. Finally, we see the last answer to our question that we have today. It's how much power does Satan really have? You see, we see from this passage in Zechariah that Satan's power to accuse holds no weight before the Lord our judge. The Lord has freely chosen to forgive those who place their trust in Jesus Christ. You see, if you, like me, sometimes find yourself worrying about what Satan can do in our lives, maybe you're fearful about the spiritual unseen. You know it's out there, you know it's real. I encourage you to rethink those views that you have in light of God's Word. See, God's Word is truth. Our eyes, our ears, our minds, they can easily deceive us into believing one of Satan's lies. But the truth of God's Word, the truth of God's Word will show us that Satan's power is limited. And if you haven't done what needs to be done to take that fear away, if you haven't placed your trust in what Christ did on the cross, I encourage you to do that. You know, John 6.47 says that whoever believes in him has everlasting life. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in him has everlasting life. 
The Lord will take away those filthy garments. He will redress you in rich, fine robes. He will make you clean. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we praise you for the work that you did on the cross to cleanse us. We praise you for the testimonies of Job and of Zechariah who clearly paint pictures for us of the limitations of Satan's power. Father, so oftentimes our fears are rooted in wrong thinking. Lord, I pray that we would always return to your word to seek truth. Go with us today, Lord, as we leave, we leave uh, this place. We pray that you would continue to bless this church body. In Jesus' name we pray.